0: We describe the excess materials exchange as a dating side for secondary materials. We're not saying we have invented the wheel and now we know how, how it needs to be. No, we don't at all. This market doesn't exist. Um, so what we do is we really work with them and listen to them. Like, what is your need? What are you worried about? Why do you need help? And create cases to just be able to, to tell stories. And, and that is what, in my experience, works the best. Well, I think the main decision that we needed to make is to continue, even though people were not necessarily understanding or ready of what we were, for what we were doing with the EME. I mean, the reason we started the company is because of the environment. So the initial stories that we, we told were very much focused on the environment. Um, and it's not that individuals don't care about it, but the companies per se don't care about it. It's not ingrained in their KPIs. Uh, making money is, which is logical, of course. Um, So when we shifted the story to, hey, but there's actually a lot of money to be made, the perception changed as well.
1: Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to Mission First, the podcast to get inspired and to learn from successful entrepreneurs who are building a sustainable future for our planet and its people. I am Gilles Toussaint, your host and the founder of GT Impact, a growth and digital marketing agency working only with companies making a positive difference in this world. Growing a company that aims at having a sustainable impact is not easy. That's why I created Mission First. In each episode, I interview one entrepreneur who has a sustainable mission and who has recently gone through the difficult first years successfully. Together, we discuss their challenges and what they have learned on the way. We go into detail with a specific focus on company culture, leadership, financing, growth and business strategy. That way, you'll learn hands-on tips on how to build a better future and a successful company too. In today's episode, I had the chance to welcome Maike Aimee-Damon. With her company, Excess Materials Exchange, she has for mission to eliminate waste from the dictionary. They help companies turn their waste into valuable resources. If you want to learn more about Circular Economy, to learn how they developed a high-tech product using AI and blockchain, and how Maike kept her motivation high against all advice in order to create a market that didn't exist yet, this episode is for you. Hi Maike, so you are... A pioneer in circular economy and sustainability, you have been working towards like, reinstating waste as a valuable resource through your, your whole education since 24, through various like, companies and projects. You've been a real driving force in the field. You've won several awards like MIT Innovator Under 35, Emerging Innovator for the Ellen MacArthur Foundation CE100 Network, and Financial Times Top Talent in the Netherlands. With your current company, Excess Materials Exchange, you've developed the resources passport that has now been made into Dutch and European policy. I know that lots of people dream of doing one TED Talk, but you have done three of them already. So all of that makes me believe that you are setting an example to follow as a driven entrepreneur who sticks to uh, like his or well, her sustainable mission. So that's why I'm extremely glad to welcome you today on this podcast, Mission First, So, Maike, thank you very much for being here today. How are you?
0: Thank you so much for having me. Doing very well. How are you?
1: I'm very good too. Pretty warm warm here, but very, very well.
0: Thanks for this introduction as well. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Funny to hear it by someone else.
1: (laughs) So, starting with a personal question, what is or which person has inspired you to become an entrepreneur?
0: Yeah, I think the answer to that question is that it's not a person. It's actually uh, nature. I think uh, just being outside in my childhood most of the time, um, I felt so uh, safe and nurtured, and I found it so beautiful. Um, and then I saw how uh, we as, as humanity were treating the environment, basically, uh, whereas we're also dependent on it, and that inspired me. Um, to do what I'm doing today,
1: which is uh, EME or excess material uh, exchange. Oh, yeah, exactly. I say it the correct way, not the other way around. Yeah, exactly. So, can you explain to me a bit um, what is what is um, the mission first of uh, EME and what how do you accomplish that mission?
0: Yeah. Um, so, first of all. We describe the Excess Materials Exchange as a dating site for secondary materials. And uh, what we do is we match supply and demand of materials or product or, or excess streams. Um, and we look for the highest value reuse option. And what highest value mean for us is that there is actually a positive financial business case, that there is an environmental impact reduction, And that we take into account the social impact. Because what we see happening right now very often is that, for example, textiles are promoted as circular textiles, but then they have been recycled under very poor conditions in third world countries. We do not want to constitute that. Um, So a very easy example of what we do then is uh, coffee leftovers. So coffee leftovers now in a restaurant, you throw them away because uh, you're not going to make coffee twice (laughs) out of the same leftovers. Um, And then usually companies pay to get rid of it. And some people know that you can grow mushrooms on it, but you can do actually a lot of other things with it and extract pigments for ink, bio, plastics, fibers, all the ingredients you need to make a new coffee cup. Uh, You can use it as water filters and then you can still grow mushrooms on it all in a cascade. So that doesn't mean it's one or the other, but it's all of it. Uh, And every step of the way, you actually create value. Um, And that is not only possible just for coffee leftovers, but for many other materials. So what we do with the excess excess materials exchange is actually making this happen for all these materials.
1: We're going to talk a little bit about the the product itself. Um, I'd like to talk a bit about numbers to understand at which stage you are with your company now. So... In terms of company size, how many employees do you do you have?
0: We're currently with fifteen.
1: Fifteen, and yes. in terms of uh, financing and uh, revenue, uh, first financing. I guess you are a for-profit company, aren't you?
0: Yes, uh, and that has been a choice because we want to show that you can actually make money uh, by doing good.
1: Okay. Are you using some of the? Are you planning to use a part of the the, you know, the profit to to share it or to give it, donate it to some nonprofit organization, for example, like some com- companies are doing.
0: Yeah, so we're planning on registering as a B Corp, mm. uh, so that we have that actually embedded in, in in the in all the official documents and just in the identity of the company. Uh, right now, we need all the money to develop software, so <laughs> right now there, there is no additional profit. But when we have it, that is indeed the plan.
1: Okay. And in terms of financing and uh, revenue, what like how have you been uh, living so far? Like, are, were you bootstrapped? Um, did you get any financing round previously?
0: Yeah. So uh, the companies were basically there's two phases, and in the first phase, it was the pilot phase to actually just see if this idea would fly. And that was funded um, with a subsidy from uh, a foundation here in the Netherlands called Stichting Doen. And uh, was paid for by the companies that participated in the pilot. And now we're in the second phase where we actually developed all the software. And that has been funded by uh, a subsidy from the metropolitan region of Amsterdam. So that is the 33 municipalities here in the regions and two provinces.
1: So that's all public funding? Yes. Okay. And Well, the
0: companies paid for it too. So that is their own money.
1: Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, that gives us a good, a good idea of where you are right now. Now, talking about, I'd like to get back to, you know, the, the co-founding parts and how you grow you grew that company from scratch. So I know you've been studying and active in the circular economy system since more than 10 years. You have this actually material Exchange vision since a very long time because you 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 were the winner of the Dutch Singularity Innovation Contest with the idea of a Google for materials in 2012, which is like already eight years ago. So what were the, I know what were the different milestones, you know, of EME in terms of uh, funding, financing, team-wise, for example?
0: Yeah, so I think the journey started a long time ago, as you said. Uh, where I invented the resources passport, which we, we use as basically the foundation of the work that we do with the EME. Um, and that I developed between 2010 and 2012. So that is, that's a long time ago. And at the time, people were like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. But they didn't really get the concept yet. So I think the market had to mature a bit more before they were ready to actually um, uh, accept it and start applying it. Um, and that was during your,
1: your master thesis, isn't it?
0: Yes, yes. So I, I was working at the time uh, as well for uh, something that is called XTEX. Uh, it stands for uh, value-extracted tax. And what they basically promote is a change of the tax system. And I know majority of the people are like, oh, my God, taxes, I don't want to hear this. But they suggest to change taxes from taxing labor to taxing resources, Um, And what that creates is a completely different society, more focused on sustainability, because, for example, repair is going to be much more affordable. Uh, So it's easier to reuse materials. Just one example. Um, And then I did the first research on how the Dutch government could budget neutrally implement a tax shift that big. Um, and I did that together with the big Four, and then I had to figure out so which labour taxes to reduce, but also which resources to tax. So I started Googling, like, okay, let's see where's the list of resources. And I found out that list isn't there. Like Companies have no clue very often what exactly is in their products, how it's composed, what the origin is, what the quality is. Every step of the way knows a little bit, but it's not combined anywhere. Um, and I thought, that this, this can't be real. Like, how is this happening? <laughs> and that is when I invented the resources passport. Um, so that's that's a very long time ago. And then in the meantime, the market matured. And then, it's, then we're in, uh, as you said, 2016. And um, I had spent some time in South America where I worked on a startup as well. And then, uh, unfortunately, my mother got very sick. So I had to come back to the Netherlands uh, to be here. So I left that. And at the time, I was hosting Wednesday night dinner. So every Wednesday night, I was inviting a group of people, whoever wanted to come, that was entrepreneurial or that was working in a corporate that they had a vision for, that they wanted to change, or people that actually wanted to make an impact uh, for the better, to come together and discuss, like, how is that going? What can we do for each other? What uh, are you running into? Can I help you with that? And my current co-founder, Christian van Mare, he uh, just came back from the US, uh, where he had worked for Shell for a long time. Uh, and he ended up at these dinners uh, because he asked in a group that's called the Young Club of Rome. So that is the youth department of the actual Club of Rome, who published the Limits to Growth report that is quite famous. Um, and he asked, who, does, who knows anything about circularity? Uh, and then everyone in the group said, Micah, uh, And I, I didn't really check the text messages at the time. I was like, oh yeah, great, come to one of these dinners and then we'll chat. So he came by, I think like three or four times to these dinners. And we never got the chance to speak because there's like sometimes 20 people. So they are always talking and it's always busy, especially when you host them. Uh, so then we decided that it would actually be nice to talk about circularity. And we organized a karaoke night. Uh, <laughs> for a group of people and uh, just before that karaoke night we organized a dinner about circularity and um, we got talking and it was amazing and then we ended up singing the whole night uh, together and then basically from then on we started the company
1: oh wow so I started like the starting with fun first and then the work ID fun and then confirmation and company yeah company study <laughs> yeah and uh, so that was the, the back in 2016. Um, I saw you were at EcoSummit in 2017. EcoSummit is a big, it's a big event for, for startup and investors to meet. And um, like focused, of course, on company who want to have an impact or ecological impact. Um, at that time, you were pitching that you were looking for a CTO. Um, how did... That happened. What happened next? How how did you find that person?
0: Yeah, well, that person actually found us. Uh, that was great. We uh, were talking at the time with a tech company to maybe outsource the building of the marketplace or do it ourselves. So we were because uh, both Christian and me are not programmers. Um, So we were having this conversation and then uh, one of the employees of that company was actually so enamored by the idea that he reached out to us and said, I would like to be the CTO. Um, Yeah, that's how it happened. And And he's still with us.
1: And and in terms of how do you define at that time, who is part of, if it's fine for you to talk a bit about, not how much, but about equity shares, for example, how do you decide if that person is actually a co-founder or if you hire him as an employee? How do you make that decision?
0: Well, I, um, I've i seen it gone wrong very often because I spent some time in Silicon Valley as well and in New York in the startup ecosystem. And we see that people very often argue all the time about the shares and, and uh, get into fights. Like, but he has more shares than me and he does less. And we didn't want to end up in any of these conversations or any of these troubles because the reason that we started this company was for the cost. Um, And it was not because we thought we were going to get rich very quickly or that we were going to earn a lot of money in the first couple of years. So um, we basically uh, stopped these conversations and said, when we get to the point, we'll have them. But for now, we just pay people a salary uh, and we'll have this conversation later because the company is also set up in a way to make everyone benefit.
1: Okay, and the, at that time, the salaries were paid with the grants that you had.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. they were just based from the yeah paid from the grants.
1: And if you uh, come back to that period, like that first two years, let's say you know before the pilot started, um, what was the most difficult part?
0: Uh, people thought we were crazy. <laughs> they were like, okay, really? Are you going to do this? Like, why? <laughs> we had so many conversations where people were like, yeah, it's very brave of you that you're going to do it. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah, this is really necessary, but we really, we really don't want to, like, we're not there yet uh, with a company, with a market. So I think the difficult part was actually creating enough awareness for people to understand why this was necessary and why they had to do it now. Um, and having conversation after conversation where people give you, as we called it, enthusiasm points. But I mean, I can't go to the supermarket here and say like, Hey, can I buy a spread with these enthusiasm points? So yeah, that, that was, that was hard. And I think another thing that was quite difficult besides the skepticism from everyone or the, the, yeah, it wasn't urgent enough. Uh, And if you, If you're so deep into the the topic, you know the urgency. So then you have to convey the urgency to them as well. Um, And my co-founder is is a man and I'm a woman. And we noticed a big difference in how people treated us. Um, That wasn't easy in the beginning either.
1: Do you have an example of of that part?
0: Yeah, uh, very often um, it happened that we were standing somewhere And I was standing next to him or next to another guy, and people just assume I'm uh, the girlfriend or (laughs) the waitress or, I don't know, someone that that didn't actually invent the resources password. Or when we were talking about the password, people had heard of it, and they would start mansplaining the password to me. It's like, yeah, I invented (laughs) this. Thanks. (laughs) I know what it is about. Um, Or when you'd have conversations about finances they just look at the guy so we would sit at tables with just like um white middle-aged uh males they wouldn't look at me um and not because they wanted to be mean it's just that that, that wasn't a culture and i think that the me too movement has made a tremendous tremendous difference in my life
1: oh really you you feel it in yeah. the entrepreneurship side too
0: yes Yes,
1: And how did you overcome, like, what's a general tip you have to, to overcome this, these situations when that, because I guess it still sometimes happens?
0: Yeah, well, I think uh, now and then is just believing in the cause. Like, I believe in what I do. I believe in the solution that we have. Um, I'm not discouraged when I hear a no. Uh, I take that as, as a starting point for further conversation. Um, and me and my co-founder are, uh, became actually really good friends. So we support each other a lot in, in when these things happened, And that's very helpful as well. Was there
1: like some kind of turning point or some kind of, you know, shift or adaptation in, in your pitch that really changed the way people say, oh, okay, I got it. Now we, we want to go, we, we need to go for, for, for that idea. I mean, the companies in general.
0: Um, yeah, I think we started off... I mean, the reason we started the company is because of the environment. So the initial stories that we, we told were very much focused on the environment. Um, and it's not that individuals don't care about it, but the companies per se don't care about it. It's not ingrained in their KPIs. Uh, making money is, which is logical, of course. Um, so when we shifted the story to, hey, but there's actually a lot of money to be made... It, it, the perception changed as well
1: okay that's a very good tip you have to start with yeah. that that that's that part of the the iceberg or of or what do you say with
0: with their reality we started with our reality but that wasn't their reality at all
1: so start with their reality that would be one of the first yeah. do i would say probably that we can learn today mm-hmm. um talking about the the product itself and the the, the resource part, passport let me just open one second, my things here. Um, how did you? Well, what does it mean first that the passport is approved as part of Dutch and now European policy?
0: Um, well, I mean it, it's not mandatory, so it doesn't mean that much um, in that sense. But what it does mean is that people see the necessity of giving resources an identity um and that they have identified this solution as a helpful solution and and very often when pe- things go by recommendation so if if one person recommends it other people are like oh yeah i've heard of that so that's convenient um so in that sense it's really helpful um and i think in general this passport is very helpful for many reasons uh for many stages in the life cycle of a material uh and also for us because it is uh, time-consuming and hence it costs some money to fill in um, the the composition of your product, um, so there needs to be a reward uh, to fill that in, and and that reward is coming, so that's great.
1: And that resources passport is it? Does it belong to the product itself? Is it unique to the product of every company, or is it unique to the you know, the, the resource, because if I understand correctly, it's basically, it's a passport that explains where all the different resources used to make one product are coming from. If I'm summarizing correctly, maybe you can correct me uh, or not.
0: It, yeah. So what we say is that it's basically a data format that gives um, a material and identity and... um we set it up in such a way that it is modular because what we see throughout supply chains is that companies um, like uh, smelters, they send it out to thousands of organizations after it left the smelter. And then people who make chips for computers, for example, they send it out to thousands of other companies. So uh, a laptop uh, is composed of many different products from many different uh, suppliers. So the passport... Um, is modular, so you can start with the product itself, uh, but then you can break it down to, within a laptop, to the screen, to the keyboard, to the mouse pads, to the casing, to um, the processor, uh, and then you can break it down to the material level, so the plastics, the aluminum.
1: And at every level, you will have, that material at every level will have its own resource passport.
0: Yes, it has an identity, yes.
1: Okay, good, then I understand um, so that's a very cheeky part for me because, you know, I used to work at, in, uh, as an R&D manager for Life, um, a company that was, uh, we were making nanomaterials for lithium batteries for electric vehicles. And I used to participate, for example, it was back in, you know, between 2010 to 2013. Uh, and I, I used to participate to a huge European project that tried to optimize the production of, of batteries to make it more ecological. And with partners such as you know Daimler, Renault, and lots of companies along the supply chain of battery manufacturing. And I know it was really hard for me to give them accurate data for their life cycle analysis because you know I would have loved to explain how we were doing it, but my company <laughs> didn't really want to, they wanted to stay super secret. And it was very hard for, for them to accept to give even details about how many, how much water we were using, for example, to produce yeah. our materials. Uh, which products, you know, brands we were using and so on. So is the resource passport private for for the company? And how do you manage now to get the info and to get the company to be transparent without, you know, breaking the secrets and the patent recipes?
0: Yeah, that's a very good question. And that was actually the main thing we needed to solve. Um, and what we did is um, we use uh, something new that's called zero knowledge proof it's a protocol on blockchain and what that does it overcomes this bridge uh, between the need for transparency and the need for privacy uh, but so you don't want to disclose all the information in your product but you still want to be able to make exchanges and reuse the material and what this protocol does is actually it keeps the information with the company, the owner of the information, but this closes part of it to an algorithm. So let's say I'm looking uh, for the new functionality for something with gold and um, copper. So then the search functionality would say to that, uh, is there gold and copper in it? And if I get two yes uh, back, then it is uh, interesting. And then we can go on to um, further investigation under NDA, for example.
1: Okay. Okay, good. That's that's solving the issue. And how long did yeah. how how did you this zero knowledge proof? How like how new is that like protocol or?
0: Yeah, it's very new. I think now maybe 3 years, 4 years. Uh I mean we started in the beginning with it and and I didn't look into the origins, but it's is very new. And that is the benefit of exponential technologies that now I mean the idea of a marketplace or the idea of exchanging materials is as we say in Dutch as old as Brussels. not sure <laughs> why 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 we chose Brussels, but um it, it's not a new idea at all. It's just been very hard to do that on a large scale because of trust issues, and these new technologies really help us overcome these trust issues
1: and that's and that's, and that's cool. enough now that's enough when people is it already like so common that like the companies know about it when you tell them, oh actually we work with you on no. Its proof. No, okay, you have to explain. No, that.
0: not at all. No, their main concern is still this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's the first that's usually the first one of the first questions they ask.
1: Okay, yeah, I can guess. And yeah could you describe it What? Bit- oh sorry.
0: Oh yeah, I wanted to say what we do is that actually within the resources passport, per line item, they can say, I want to share this information with this person for this amount of time under these conditions, or I don't want to share it at all. It's really, really specific what they can share or not.
1: And I guess it, there is like here for, there is a, a like a a money incentive as well. I guess the more they detail, the more chances they have to, to be able to find ways to to use and to reuse their resources. Yes,
0: yes, exactly.
1: That's a good money incentive. Is always the best. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, in your like TED talk, um, the last TED talk you've done, you talk about three cornerstones of your product. Do you want to just briefly explain them so that people really get the good idea of what uh, sure. PME is doing?
0: So, um, the three cornerstones are the three eyes. It's um, identity, intelligence, and integral approach. Uh, So what we do is we start by giving uh, products or materials an identity. Now very often they don't have an identity and because they don't have an identity, we don't know if we can reuse them, how much money it would cost, what exactly is in there. So it's very hard to make the business case um, for reuse or recycling of these materials. But when they have an identity, you can really easily separate uh, types of plastics or valuable materials for for less valuable materials. um, So that really helps uh, the whole circular economy. Then what we do after that is adding intelligence. And that is, in one part, we do that with blockchain, the other part is with AI. And I know that they're extremely, like, buzzwords. but in this case, they're relevant for the work that we do. So the blockchain part is, is indeed to overcome this gap that we just spoke about between the need for transparency and the need for privacy, uh, which is one of the main barriers to actually on a large scale exchange secondary materials. And then the second one is AI, because if you want to make uh, an optimal match, it's very context dependent. like send in one location, and send 500 meters away, could have a very different legal status and therefore could have very limited or different options. Um, and humans can do that, but AI can do that much faster and, and much better and can take into account m- many more factors. Um, so it really helps us in scaling up this economy as the circular economy as well. And then uh, the last part is integral approach. So what we see right now is that there are some marketplaces, or there are some initiatives, for example, in building and construction to reuse materials, or uh, in restaurants, like with with the coffee left over. But they use and they look in their own sector, but very often that material in the same sector is also for other companies still a waste stream, not a useful resource. So what we do is we actually look between different sectors, and we see that. The highest value matches are made between different sectors and not within the same sector. And it's very difficult um, for these sectors to communicate because traditionally they don't communicate at all. They have very different jargon. So um, that the way we standardize the passports, the giving an identity and the AI uh, really helps in making matches between sectors as well.
1: And between these different sectors for example you know i read the the report of the I, not, I didn't read the whole report to be honest uh, but <laughs> i read the executive summary of the report for of the pilot and um, the example of the or- orange peels with a uh, i think sodexo uh, yeah. it, it's it's a very good example in how they can be re- re- reused from other companies to start making oil uh, what is limonene or i don't remember what it was yeah. um but that's a re- like that's a big B to B, you know, exchange. But when you are like talking about, for example, coffee leftovers in restaurants, is that already possible to be able to pick up these leftovers at every restaurants and to basically resell them to some so, somewhere and like in a profitable way?
0: So what we do right now is, for example, we uh, did for the airport in the L- Netherlands Schiphol or for Sodexo, so then they have at a location, huge amount of that waste. Um, and then it's, it's, it makes a business case. But for every individual individual restaurant in Amsterdam, we, we are not there yet.
1: Okay, it's not like small business ready yet.
0: No, it's not small business ready, no.
1: Good. Uh, and I read on LinkedIn, you said, you know, with, with EME, that has been like a roller coaster a little bit. So what what was um you we already talked about the how to convince the people but was was this the hardest part during these like um like you know the pilot phase what was the hardest part during these years?
0: I think this, it's it's mainly the combination of things that make it hard. It's not just one thing like this is the hardest, but it's it's really you have no income, which is actually quite stressful. Um, You're working extremely hard all the time. Um, You get a lot of rejection, so you have to keep up the courage to believe in what you're doing. Um, I think that combination of being addressed as a woman so differently from a man, um, being put in a different position, um, I think those things combined make it very difficult to, um, to always be happy what you're doing.
1: Okay. And if we talk, I'd like to talk a bit about the, the business model now. What is the current like business model now?
0: Yeah, so we have a couple of propositions that we put in the market. Uh, one is for companies to just uh, have resources passports. Um, and the reason they would want that is because it gives a great overview of the assets that they have. And we found for a company in the Middle East, uh, by doing that, that. Only in scrap that they had laying around on the terrain, it was a value of uh, 7 million euros. So that's just getting an insight into the assets that you actually own and where they're at is really, really helpful. Then from there, you can start making all kinds of strategic decisions, assign decisions. Um, but that's that's one proposition. Then another proposition that we offer is matchmaking. So some companies don't have a lot of streams. They just have a couple main streams and they... Now, very often, just pay a waste processor to get rid of it. Uh, But there's, in in our experience, usually a higher value reuse option to be found. So what we do then is for that specific material or product stream, we make a match. Um, So then we find an alternative buyer for it. And then the last proposition that we have is the actual marketplace. And what we see is we started this by, by thinking that companies would want a public market. But but companies are not there yet in their thinking and they want to try on their own with their own assets and play around to get a feeling with it. So we now offer a marketplace usually for companies that have multiple locations, for example. Can we use materials from one location to another location? Uh, for a consortium of companies that work together a lot, especially in building and construction or for uh, specific regions uh, like harbors or ports, um, industrial zones, um, to use the marketplace together and see how they among each other can exchange the materials.
1: And for so there are three, basically, like yeah. income. The, 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 I guess the quick scan that you have on your website is what you call like analyzing all the resources of the, of the company. So I guess that they pay, uh, they pay once for that.
0: No, the the quick scan is actually even if it is even easier. is just a is just stepping stone usually to one of the other three. Um, so companies, of course, are very risk adverse, um, and before they pay, for example, for a resources passport or for matchmaking, they want to know if there's an actual to potential within their material. So can they actually make money of it? Can they actually reduce the environmental impact? So with the quick scan we give a very quick overview of whether or not there is still potential in that material financially or environmentally
1: and that quick that that quick scan i think costs 990 euro i know it can like sometimes be like peanuts for some companies but uh, yeah. why did you decide to make it uh in that case at that price and to not offer it for free for example wouldn't you have way more companies Uh, interested if you would do that quick scan for free and then seeing being able and filter these companies maybe in advance knowing okay this is going to be an interesting one or not
0: yeah we decided to actually put the price on it because we see that when you make things free people are careless about it and it still costs us time and effort Um, and we do cater towards the bigger companies at this point in time because their volumes are more interesting and then with that, for us, it's easier to learn and set up everything in such a manner that it in a later stage is also uh, easier accessible for smaller companies. Um, so we did it with a reason. So for our target group, this is peanuts, um, and that is why we chose it because it has to be peanuts, but for our target group
1: okay that, that's very interesting. So can you explain us a bit how you came to that conclusion? Where there are there different like like steps? In order to decide how you you, you decided to, to process like this,
0: well, it's it's based on experience with, for example, the pilot project and tons and tons and tons of conversations with people. Um, so initially, we didn't necessarily know where to start, uh, and and especially where we work across industries and, and then the first question we got in the beginning is so what sector are you focusing on and we're like yeah well we're cross-sectoral okay <laughs> so that already was difficult for people to understand uh right now and we did a pilot with 10 different companies from completely different sectors so we did uh, dsm is a chemical company schiphol is an airport so dexo is a catering company arendt is a um furniture manufacturer um Philips, um so very, very different companies and, and we see what would work or what wouldn't work. And right now we see that there's four industries or four sectors especially interested. And that's building and construction, textiles, packaging, and organics. Um so that is where we have the majority of the assignments and, and the majority of the conversations and, and these companies are yeah, we we discuss with them, would you want to pay this? And then they said yes.
1: So that's what there was basically an ongoing market research and discussion with them.
0: Yeah, it's always ongoing market research uh, because it's an emerging market. So there's not like I, I can't open a web page and say like, OK, so what's going on in this market and how do companies feel like it? Like we are basically creating our own markets and that's what makes it much more difficult.
1: And do you have any special tips on how you have like approached these companies? Did you? You know, did you get introduced? Did you just, you know, cold 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 email the people to how did you find the right people to talk to and to convince them to at least, you know, try the the, the yeah. first steps with you?
0: Oh well that isn't always easy, but I um, it's funny because it went organically but people keep asking this question as if it shouldn't go organically but i think we just reached out to people especially over linkedin but also because i've been speaking at events people have seen it somewhere uh people have seen it in the news um so that is actually quite helpful for a startup that other people are like oh yeah i've heard of this oh yeah and then the introduction is easier and then we just reached out to the people in those companies, say, are you responsible for this? Are you able to make a decision on this? Or could you bring us in touch with the person who can? Because otherwise you're spending so much time talking to the person who can't approve of the assignment. Um, but that is actually going pretty well. I think also because I've been working in these fields, basically my whole career, people in the Netherlands, I think have a pretty okay idea of who I am.
1: Uh, yeah, I I think I would really like to dig a bit now, like a bit later. Sorry, a bit later about the the presentations and the TED conferences and all the, like, the events you're going to, to try to finish with the business model because I drifted myself away with that. Uh, so you start with a quick scan that you said is just the entry point to to get through the three different uh, matchmaking uh, resource resources passport and marketplace possibilities. Um, for these three, how do company like are they paying like a, you know, a monthly subscription? Is it a one-time payment or is it a commission? Do you take a commission of how much they resell, for example?
0: Yeah. So for the resources passport and for the marketplace, it's a monthly subscription fee. And then for the matchmaking, it is a, a tiny, like basically an administration fee for some work that we need to do. And then it's a success fee. So if we actually make a, make a match, do we get a percentage?
1: Okay. And I guess it, it was the same thing. There is nothing particular about, apart from a continuous market research and ongoing discussion to, that made you arrive to this these uh, models.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it might still evolve. Yeah. Th- this field is evolving. So right now this seems to work. Let's okay. see in a year from now.
1: <laughs> Let's, I would love to talk, the next part, I would love to talk about the the presentation part, which is going to be very, very interesting. And to finish on on the the EME part, what is uh, Can you explain us a bit about the the pilot that I think you you started or you finished in twenty um, yeah. nineteen? You know, how did that idea arrive to do a pilot instead of you know just asking companies to join in pay? Maybe you can start by explaining what what you did with this pilot.
0: Yeah. So when we uh, started working together. And we incorporated the company in September 2017. So we met in 2016. It took some time um, before we both actually were full-time on EME. Um, and then companies believed in the idea and they saw the use for it, but they were a bit reluctant in like, is it actually going to work? Are we actually going to find higher value matches? Because, I mean, waste already has a destination. So how are you, what do you mean finding another destination? It's already going somewhere. We're not like uh, a country where the waste is piling up on the streets. So uh, then we, we wanted to have stories to tell, like use cases, because that's actually what convinced people. I can talk all I want, but if I don't have any uh, proof of a case where it worked, it, people don't really believe it. So we thought, okay, we have to prove that this works. And also for ourselves, like before we're actually going to go full-flung for this, it's good to know that, uh, that the idea that we have works. Um, so then we decided to start a pilot and because we didn't know which sector would be most susceptible, we just chose very big corporates that have like, um, uh, like are well-known by the public uh, that we could work with and then show that it is possible. And the results of the pilot were really remarkable, even much better than we thought. So we analyzed in total 18 different material streams uh, of 70,000 tons, which is uh, seven Eiffel Towers, if that means more <laughs> to you. Um, and then the financial value that we created by finding alternative destinations for those of higher value was 64 million uh, euros. So that, that like the potential of that is enormous. And the carbon emissions that we reduced is um, a, a whole population of Amsterdam, which is 863,000 people in a car to drive to Milan, uh, water we saved 860 olympic swimming pools and energy we saved um enough energy to let the street slide of paris burn for five years so that was in- incredible for just 18 material streams in 10 companies um and that really showed people especially because we did it with companies that have like an example function and then it's like oh wow this is much bigger than we thought
1: yeah, that's very impressive the, n- the numbers and i love how you've actually like in your story and how you convert these numbers, which exactly don't mean much to people when you say, you <laughs> save, you know, 2,883 terajoules of energy, but telling them that's the energy consumption of the public lights in Paris for five years, that's that's very self-explanatory. I love it. Um, when So these companies that started with you, uh, the pilot, did, were they paying for that pilot already or not?
0: Yes, they paid to participate in a pilot. yeah, oh, okay. we wanted to see willingness to pay because otherwise it still might have not made any sense to start the EME. and what did
1: you learn like I mean, not on the let's say let's like scientific side or the the ecological side, but in terms of entrepreneurship, what did you learn running this pilot? Did you make any like you know mistakes or that that you would do differently now or
0: I mean, I'm sure. I I think being human is is trial and error (laughs) most of the time, Uh, especially creating a new market. Uh, There were no grave mistakes. Um, There's nothing terrible that happened. I think everything went exceptionally well. Um, So there's nothing that I can think of. I'm like, oh, oh, I wish we hadn't done that. Not at all. I think what we saw, um, what was one of the biggest eye-openers for me, besides indeed all the tech and environmental and the potential that was there is that um, organizations are really really not structured to think about materials uh, in a way where they can be exchanged they don't think they're not structured to think about a circular economy or enable a circular economy so there's a lot of organizational change that actually needs to take place before we arrive to a large-scale circular economy and not just with the work that we do but of course your economy is broader than that. And that was that was an eye opener to me. There's a lot of work that needs to be done in the way they're organized right now.
1: As a side question, what's your vision on the future like because these big corporate companies are really slow to change. How do you think we as an entrepreneur or as a person can influence them to change quicker? Do you already have some hints on that?
0: Well, I think what what makes people change usually is not more facts or not pretending that you're right, Is just showing them the way. So I think that's what we're doing. We're not saying we have invented the wheel and now we know how how it needs to be. No, we don't at all. This market doesn't exist. Um, so what we do is we really work with them and listen to them. Like, what is your need? What are you worried about? Where do you need help? And create cases to just be able to, to tell stories. And, and that is what in my experience works the best in, in making people believe uh in what we do and see the need for what we do.
1: That's great. That's probably my second and third do's for today to show them the way and to create yeah. cases. Like it's it's also very funny and interesting because uh when one of the first episodes with Jeff Kirchner was built a, a community of people with literati to his company literati to help uh, clean up the planet and like get rid of litter everywhere um yeah yeah, one of his advice was to don't build the community for them build it like build it with them so it's it's, you go a little bit in that direction yeah um so that was it for the pilot parts now one one thing that i would like to to talk about uh micah it's the public speaking part of like of your experience I really loved first how you like you described yourself on your LinkedIn profile. So I, I will start with a few of these lines uh, to to just uh, go on with the conversation. You said you were a cereal chocolate heat eater. Can you iterate on that?
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> I the reason I wrote that is because. I was um, I, I, I invented the resources passport, and I thought, how funny is it if I just make a like a resources passport about myself? Um, and I love chocolates like a hundred percent, and I eat like a chocolate bar a day almost. A day, um, yeah, <laughs> I eat a lot. <laughs> I love it like so much. I don't know. Uh,
1: your one of the other things you described in your in your own like resources passport was uh, your ears that capability is good. Of a good listener. How do you think that helps you in your job as a CEO?
0: I think especially working uh, with so many different companies, with so many different people in a market that is emerging, uh, whereas I do have my own vision of the future, but I need to have people jump on the same train. Uh, I can't do that if I just keep on rambling on about my own story. Um, if I don't make them feel heard about their concerns, they're not gon- They're not willing to listen to me either, because uh, that's not how it works. Um, so I think it's very helpful in having a meaningful interaction with clients and 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 just people that I work with in general, and build something together to move forward.
1: You described your tongue as a. You described tongue and then two dots. Good communication skills, public speaker and an above average number of taste buds. You have a pretty impressive public speaking experience. First, it started in 28 when you were uh, part of the like, first official youth delegate for the, the UNFCCC Cup. So that's a part of the United Nations like, dealing with, uh, with climate change, where you gave a speech at that time in front of the like, worldwide leaders like Ben Ki-moon. And then you gave like three TED Talks. How, regarding especially like the, the TED Talks, how do you get a TED Talk?
0: Um, people ask me. <laughs> uh, they ask me to do it. Um, and I think uh, they asked me because I've been working on, on innovative concepts about new ideas. And that is what TED is all about um inspiration innovation and sharing that with people so i think people found out that i was working on something that might be of interest to other people and they asked me to give a talk
1: and if other people are innovative here and are asked, are asked to do a ted talk how do you make the most out of it how would you like prepare it now with your with your experience of having done three of them
0: that's a good question. I mean, I what's, think what's what, going
1: through your head? Uh, let, let's if you if you try to break it down, and you know you you know like the last one was when in January this year,
0: In November last
1: year. Oh November last year, so very yeah. I mean, recently. So yeah. when when you learn that you are going to have your your next TED talk, what are the different steps you you go through to to prepare until? get there and you, to prepare your story, to prepare uh, the presentation itself, uh, the rehearsing, the stage performance, for example?
0: Yeah, well, I think what is most important, because I'm actually quite afraid to stand on the stage, <laughs> um, is to, to, to stay authentic. It's like, okay, this is me, this is what I believe in, and, and the reason I get asked is because of what I do, not of who I am or because I want to stand on the stage. So I keep going back on what is the topic that people might be interesting in or, and then I try to position myself in the shoes of the audience and be like, okay, so what if I was sitting there, what would I want to hear? Uh, what would be interesting to know about? Um, how can I make concepts that are not necessarily interesting for people? Because initially, I don't think a lot of people are excited about waste in general or materials. Like, Why should I talk think about that? So. Try to make something that seems very unrelatable a bit more relatable to people. Um, and, then, and then talk what you're passionate about.
1: And regarding that idea, for example, you know, where you explain very well that where people see waste, you see a gold mine. Where, for example, how did you come up with that idea?
0: Uh, actually, that that is my communications advisor that came up with that. So for for EME, we work with a communications advisor, um, and she uh, she came up with that because in the Eco Summit uh, presentation that I gave in two thousand and seventeen, as you mentioned, um, uh, I'm talking about uh, that we flush uh, like um, millions worth of gold, copper, and silver through the through the toilets and the drains every year. So it ends up in our sewer system. Um, so that, that shit is literally actually worth gold. Um, and she turned it into gold mine, which I think was brilliant of her.
1: Oh, that, that's very interesting. And how does, it, how does that work with that communication advisor? Do you, do you, for example, make most of the story first and then you, she, you present it to her and then she gives you a feedback or do you prepare it with her directly?
0: Yeah, it, it depends. Like, um, um, Basically, it's, it's, it's my own story. It's, she just helps a lot with how can you use some words or repeat some sentences that make people um, understand it better. Uh, and because in this TED Talk, for example, I repeat the word goldmine over and over. That is not something I initially would have done, even though I know that people like repetition because then they remember it. Um, yeah. So she, 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 she suggested that and that was very nice of her.
1: Mm-hmm. And is she an employee who is like constantly working with you or is, is she someone that you hire then just when you have important pitches? or?
0: Yeah, she's an independent contractor. She, uh, she has other jobs as well.
1: Okay, so you would recommend it's, it's something you would recommend to an entrepreneur. Like, how much has that helped uh, you?
0: Not, I mean, she is amazing. Her name is Elsa um, Kuiper. But for us, and, and in this case for me, it works out really well to work with her. But uh, I mean, there's other communication advisors that maybe wouldn't have been so helpful. So I think in this case, the reason that is beneficial also is because there's a click mm-hmm. uh, between me and her. Um, and we build upon each other, and that's helpful. But I wouldn't necessarily suggest working with a communication advisors. The reason that we do that is it's for the company, because we have to produce lots of leaflets and lots of promotional material. Um, and sometimes it's nice to have someone who is actually an expert in the field look at it instead of just making everything by yourself and be like, oh, yeah, I'm sure this is okay. Um, yeah.
1: I think it's like... With everything being creative, it's very important that you 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 click with the person you work with. It's the same thing with design. You cannot like when you hire a designer if at the at the beginning it doesn't click and you you're not in love with what it's doing. It's it's very hard to change someone or to find someone who can advise you properly. Um, talking about going on with your description on LinkedIn, you said stomach um, stomach deals with stressful situations love really goes through the stomach. How do you deal with like stress? Let's take two situations. The first situation would be, for example, for these presentations. How do you prepare yourself mentally the day of the event or you know, the few minutes before?
0: Uh, I, I try to think positive thoughts um, because I find it um, quite scary to... Um, because I have a vision of where I would like society and the economy to go. And of course, not everyone agrees with that. And it's very easy to say, "Bah!" but I don't like this story. I mean, I have a very different vision. So it's always a bit... um, I I feel very vulnerable when I'm standing on a stage sharing my opinion, my vision, Um, because I understand that lots of people have other visions and opinions. Um, so what I do is just um, think positive thoughts and really connect with myself. It's like, I really believe in that. And I have lots of experience, lots of research, lots of things that I can build upon. And, and it's really okay if people don't agree, um, because that is their right. So I, I sort of strengthen myself to be vulnerable and be able to give all the enthusiasm and all the beliefs that I have, but not force it on them. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, it makes total sense. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I'd love to talk a bit about the the partnership uh, because you said something very interesting, I think, already today, but also in your in one of your presentations that you have a lot of partners, like, you know, Sodexo, Philips, uh, Accenture, like Banks and Research Institute, and you said they helped you with exposure, but not money. Um, how do you find these partners initially? Uh,
0: some actually helped in kind. So, um, so they did help a lot. Um, um, and we found them by just reaching out. Like lots of companies have uh, startup programs, are interested in learning about new innovations. And what we did is we looked at what, uh, type of companies are really going to be affected by a circular economy and uh, would really benefit from learning about how to deal with it. So, one of the partners that we have is a law firm called Stibbe. Um, and there's a whole new field uh, emerging here around circular economy because right now, legislation is aimed at the moment that you have the intention to get rid of something, it turns into waste. Um, but by classifying it as waste, the reuse or recycling options are quite limited. Um, and in a circular economy, you want this to be easy. So they have lots, a lot to gain by working with a startup that, that is uh, changing that. Um, the same for a bank. Like it, There's a lot of different financial models that are coming out of the circular economy. The same for accounting firms that we work with uh, for the bookkeeping. Like If you're going to lease... Is a different model. Um, if you're gonna reduce a lot of carbon emissions, on whose uh, account are you gonna accredit for those? So those questions, they really benefit from learning from uh, actual cases.
1: And these partners, you've started. When have you started to to start looking when you, for the first ones?
0: Uh, in immediately. So in 2017, we knew. I mean, we were just two very young people, like two very young people having a dream, like you need um, a crowd to actually make it happen. You can't do that on your own. And you want it to be uh, a wave that grows and grows and goes on on its own. It shouldn't be revolving around two people only. It should be spreading around and other people should feel ownership of it.
1: You can't do that on your own. That's also a a good tip. Thank you. Um, I'd love to talk a bit about the, the final part before the usual bonus questions that I ask uh, all of our guests about your background and two things in particular: your your education and the the, the different activities that you had, uh, like beside being a CEO. In terms of education, I think you you like to study a lot uh, because uh, you know you, you've done your first master in cultural. Anthropology uh, in 24 till 29. Then uh, you did a a Master in Sustainable Development uh, at Utrecht. And then you were part of the Singularity University in 2012, where you actually won this, uh, just before, you won this Dutch Singularity Innovation Contest with this idea of uh, Google for Materials. Um, I think it's very, lots of, I don't know if you, are listening a lot to that, but there are a lot of influencers like Gary V for example who are you know pushing kids for example to follow their dreams you know about entrepreneurship and that they don't have to study and because you know their parents want them to study that they can study later and While I think there are some successful stories of you know college dropout, I think it can be pretty dangerous sometimes to generalize, generalize that as a message so how do you feel? All these studies have helped you so far to accomplish what to to, to help you be where you are right now.
0: Well, that's that's of course um, that's a beautiful question and difficult to answer because I am who I am because I did that and not anything else. So stepping out of that and thinking, what if I did something else? Who would I be? Is is a, is even a more difficult question? Um, for me, I always loved studying. I loved learning how things worked, how people think, um, why people do the things that they do. Because of so many things in this world, I don't understand how they came to be and how it works. And finding that out for me is, I find it fascinating. So hence, I enjoy it. Um, I think one of the main things that are actually very helpful that I learned while studying is being very critical so always asking, is that true? Why is it? And I think especially in this era of fake news is a very helpful skill to always be mindful. What do I think? What do other things? What did they say? What is it based upon? Is this cross-referenced? Uh, and then like, learn to form your own opinion about it. Uh, that That's a ha- very helpful skill to have learned.
1: And regarding the different activities than just being a CEO. So I see, for example, LinkedIn, you have Presently, you have uh, you are still active or present uh, on three different experiences on your profile. Um, what were they saying? Like singularity, like you chapter ambassador. Um, I think for sandbox as well, the young like the young club of Rome as a project manager. Can you like briefly explain these like three groups, for example, and what you do for sure. them?
0: Um, at the moment, not too many things, uh, because running a company is actually <laughs> really, really more than a full-time job. Um, but what they are, they're they're uh, lots of very helpful networks. So the Singularity University network, I set up the chapter in Amsterdam to open up the knowledge about exponential technologies and how they can have a positive impact or how you can leverage them to have a positive impact can be dispersed to more people because this whole um, theme around the singularity, but also exponential technology and Singularity University itself was seen as something very elite. Um, what is so, it exactly?
1: What, sorry, like, uh, sorry to cut you off. So
0: yeah, the Singularity University is a university that was set up by Google and NASA in Silicon Valley, I think in 2008. Uh, ish um, and is really aimed at um, letting people uh, learn about and experience how exponential technologies like nanotech and biotech and robotics and AI uh, are not something super scary but how you can leverage their impact for good and what we do for example with this blockchain protocol we can be afraid of it of all the the, the dangerous things you can do with it, but you can also really apply it to a problem that, that needed a solution. So they really help you to, to train that thinking and especially the exponential thinking. And there's always a question that we ask um, if people say, but why should I do anything about material scarcity right now? Um, and then material scarcity, I mean, is, is physical, economical, and political. So there's different levels to it for the people that are purists about this. But let's imagine you're in a big soccer stadium, uh, and you're standing in the middle of this stadium, and a water drop falls every minute, but it also doubles every minute. How long do you think it takes before this stadium is filled to the top? Yeah.
1: Would say less than an hour?:
0: Yeah, It's 46 minutes which is nothing. And at minute 30, the water is at your ankles and you'd be like, oh, you know, I got plenty of time. But then in in fifteen minutes, it's filled to the top. Um, And this is exponential uh, growth, exponential change. And that's happening for lots of patterns in society, but people are not wired to think like that. They think linearly, one, two, three, four, but this goes one, two, four, eight, 16, 32. Uh, So that goes a lot faster. Um, so we wanted to open it up to the public here in Amsterdam Um, so that I did and Sandbox is a network of uh, individuals all over the world who are very passionate about subjects and uh, make a difference in their field so there is uh, chefs there is journalists there is dancers there is uh, artists, architects uh, doctors Um, so these people are selected from all over the world. And and it's amazing to be part of a network where people are all uh, thinking constructively, uh, connecting with each other over the challenges that they run into in their own fields. Um, yeah, it's amazing. And how,
1: so I guess these networks, uh, it's probably difficult to, to answer, to say how much they've helped you because you are in it and it's not that you can compare without being in it. But if you were to recommend them to like other entrepreneurs, how have you chosen in which groups you you dedicate your time?
0: Um, I think based upon feeling eventually, uh, what made me feel good? What did I believe in? Um, I feel really good when I spend time with with people from Sandbox. Uh I feel like it's my family. Um And because I feel so good, it gives me a lot of energy and it gives me a lot of energy to continue on the journey that I'm on. Um,
1: Yeah. Thank you. And regarding the Singularity University, is that something that, because you said it's very elite, is that something that anyone can join? Do you have to pay for it? Uh, Well, the
0: university itself, yeah. So you have to, it depends per country. Uh, And and when I I went there in 2012, so the program has changed in the meantime, but at the time uh, you had to apply and there was a a national innovation challenge. So like thousands of people could apply with their innovative ideas and they would select one or two people and they would sponsor them to go to, to the university, I think. So I won the contest in the Netherlands and I think the prize was like tens of thousands of euros, like money that I would never have been able to pay. And I got sponsored to go there. Hence, it's seen as an elite place because people with money can go there. Uh, but these chapters that are now opened up all over the world, so not just in Amsterdam, but but in many other places around the world, also in Germany, uh, they're free for the public.
1: That's good to know. I will like, share the yeah. links as part of the links in the podcast episode on my, on my website. Um, so that's, thank you very much for sharing that. For, for me, I would like to go to the last question that I always ask all my guests. So the first one is, what is the best advice you've been given as an entrepreneur?
0: <laughs> the best.
1: Or the most useful in your case?
0: I think stay, staying true to yourself is the most useful one. Because you get so many opinions and so much advice that you have to know who you are because otherwise you completely lose track of who you are and what you were doing.
1: Do you have any, like, did you have any situation when you said, like, you, you, loo- you lose yourself, like, because I guess, you know, you probably have a, a board and you, you have mentors around you. Do you have any example of when you actually didn't know what to choose and how you managed to take a step Step back to to be able to you know know what you have to do.
0: Um, well, I think th- the main decision that we needed to make is to continue, even though people were not necessarily understanding already of what we were for what we were doing with the EME. Um, and then hearing like, "But you shouldn't do that. You're really smart. You should just get a job and earn money. Why aren't you like?" having a family, why aren't you getting married and settled down? Um, those types of advices. And then you see people around you um, buying houses, settling down, earning lots of money, having very stable jobs, having job security. Um, thing, But you can also change companies from within. Like there's so many people giving you advice. Or so when we said, no, we're going to continue. they're like, but yeah, but you should focus on on the textile sector. Yeah, that should should just be the focus and you're like yeah maybe they're right maybe we should focus on the textile industry oh yeah, yeah. and the only way to get out of that is is by going inside thinking but what do i think what do i make of all the information that's coming to me of all the conversations i've had with all these people um talking with my business partner and then from there um just try to be very objective um and and like make a list of pros and cons, and stay true to your feeling as well. And somehow that that all I, it's hard to describe because it seems to be going quite automatic for me. Um, so maybe my explanation is not super helpful.
1: Are you making like Excel files or like a list of pros and cons often? For these no which
0: I just do that in a conversation with my business partner we like so sometimes you have a question like should we publish this now or shouldn't we publish it You're like and we could do both so then we just start reasoning okay what would be why we should do it and what would be why we shouldn't do it or getting external investments like do we want it from this company or do we not want it from this company and then we're just thinking okay the benefits from doing it now would be this. The negatives would be this. What do we feel with everything? What are the consequences? Just conversations that we have.
1: What's your favorite interview question to ask candidates during your recruiting process?
0: That's a good question. I, I have not narrowed it down to a favorite question, but I think it's a bit in line with um, what, uh, what we call systems thinking seeing how their brain works to test out what would they do in an unexpected situation where they have to think bigger um, than, than just the standard to book information and seeing how they respond to that.
1: So do you put them into a certain situation to, and ask them how they would react or do you ask them to give you an example of that?
0: Yeah, for example, or just like I, I unfortunately don't have one of the questions at hand now but ask them a really weird question like what would you do if you had uh, a ton of milk sent to your house because they thought that was a depot um things like that and what are they going to answer like who are they going to call how are they going to solve it just see what they think about it or uh yeah system thinking questions um
1: that's the kind of questions you get at Google or these companies sometimes. I never heard, this is the first time I hear about system, I mean, I heard about system thinking, but system thinking questions for interview process, it's it's a new concept to me, so it's very interesting.
0: Well, the reason we do it is because we, we're operating in a system where, where like we want to create a complete paradigm shift where waste that is seen as worthless is seen as something valuable. And we are just like a tiny... Um, organization in that, and trying to push all kinds of leverage points to make people move. But we're dependent on accountancy firms, on financial institutions, on the legal uh, structure that is around this to happen. So we um, need them to move along with us, to move, to jump on our train, and and do take the steps that they need to take. Because I cannot take the steps for them. Um, and in order to do that, you need to be able to zoom out. So it's not just EME, but I'm zooming out to the bigger picture, which is the earth and the environmental system and, and environmental boundaries that are in there and different actors that are playing in that field. And how do they need to interact? And where can I make the biggest impact? Because I could have also chosen to have a company that focused on education. Um, so I'm, So zooming out, um, and then identifying where I can have an impact, that is um, that is a skill that is necessary in the work that we do. Um, also, if we're looking for matches, you have to zoom out. Plastic, we're using it as plastic bottles. Yeah, we we know that. So you need to be able to think outside of the box and bigger. So in the interviews that we do, because we're creating a new market and because we're creating like a whole new high-value matchmaking system, people need to be able to... To, to think in systems so bigger than just the this, this small box that they're used to thinking. Hence, we ask them these questions.
1: Thank you. Great tip too. I will keep it for later. <laughs> when you talk, my next question was, which book would you recommend other entrepreneurs like, like you or like, you know, who want to have a sustainable impact on the world to read? And my second question is, My second question, regarding what you just said, is if I want to learn about circular economy and circularity, what would be the book about that topic that you would recommend me to read if I want to start a business and entrepreneur in that field?
0: Well... I mean, there's tons and tons of books, and some people resonate with some type of story, other people resonate with another type of story, but building on to what I previously said about systems thinking, a book that really helped me was the book called Systems Thinking by Donella Meadows. Um, and that explains how systems actually work, what they look like, how you can um, turn them into your benefits. And I think that, as an entrepreneur, having that knowledge is actually quite helpful. A plus, I think it's interesting too that people know the concept system thinking in general.
1: That's good. So, it's how advanced is it? In the it's in quite the
0: advanced. It's quite advanced, but, uh, but is you can like if yeah, it's not like a Sunday afternoon. I'm going to read a nice story. It is it, it like explains the theory behind it, but it is readable for for a layman audience. Okay.
1: And what is the like the training or the podcast or the you know the blog or the influencer that you would recommend uh, entrepreneurs and people growing a startup with a sustainable goal to to follow to to read or basically if you take your case, what is the influencer or the podcast that you're listening to?
0: Oh there are so many uh, I think what is a really great organization is the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. they're really. Um, a name in this field and they make difficult concepts very insightful and understandable, uh, help big corporates but also work uh, on, on the general public um, they have tons and tons of resources amazing research, wonderful videos, so I would definitely recommend checking out that organisation
1: Great, we'll put the link too. um That's it for today maybe to end up the usual question, where can people reach out to you if they, you know, if they want to learn more about EME or you can basically tell me anything about you or your company where you would like people to reach out to you?
0: Yeah, they can go to the website, which is www.accessmaterialsexchange.com uh, or they can just go to a LinkedIn and send me a message there.
1: Okay, perfect. I will share the links as well in the podcast episode. On that note, I thank you again so much for your time. This was very insightful. I've learned a lot. So thank you very much, Micah, and have a lovely afternoon and a good weekend.
0: Thank you so much, too for having me. Really, really great. Thanks a lot.
1: If you like this podcast, there are two things you can do that would mean the world to me the first thing is to sign up for the podcast newsletter. That way, you will be notified of the new episodes, but you will also get a summary of the learnings at the end of every season. Plus, for each episode, you will get the resources and the list of do's and don'ts that every guest shares with me. And finally, you will also get the opportunity to ask our future guests one question in advance. You can sign up for this newsletter on gtimpact.com. The second thing you can do to be super helpful is to recommend this podcast. For that, you can write a review on Apple Podcasts and share the podcast with your friends, other entrepreneurs and people trying to build a sustainable future. That way, we can all learn together and work on a brighter future for us, our children and our planet. Thank you very much and see you next week for the next episode. Have a nice day.